0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're going over only four verses. We've got four verses, but these verses are so rich, I really feel like there's at least two sermons in these four verses. So that's what you're going to get this morning. You're going to get two for the price of one and the price is free. So uh, don't complain about either of them. Maybe one of them will be good. Uh, But so here we go. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 13 through 16. Um, And I don't know about you. I don't know what you've been watching on TV recently. But as for me in my house, we've been watching the Olympics. I mean, we've got Olympic fever in the Gregory household. That is what's on TV. That is what our kids are trying to do in the backyard. And we're loving it. And I love the Olympics. I love the idea of the Olympics where all these different countries, we get together all over the globe. We compete against one another. We see things that should be impossible for humans to do. And I love that this is spanned back forever ago. I mean, back before the days of Jesus, they had the Olympics. During the time of Jesus, there would have been Olympics going on. And I love that idea. If we look though today at what Olympics look like in our modern age versus what they look like in the ancient era, I mean, there's quite a few differences. In fact, this year, we know because of the COVID pandemic going on, there's no fans allowed at the Olympics this year. Back in ancient times, there could be fans, you know, but mainly only men could go. Women were not allowed, not even just as competitors, but even as spectators at the ancient Olympics. In fact, if a married woman went and tried to be in the crowd of fans at the ancient Olympics, uh, it was a penalty punishable by death, which is pretty harsh, right? Also, you're going to notice today they've got this high-tech gear, right? Like if you've watched any of the fencing, they have these like lights that buzz anytime they're touched by the other thing. If you've seen the cyclists, they've got this high-tech gear and bikes that they're using. Even the swimmers have those like onesie shorts things that like help them go through the water quicker. That's what we have today. Back in ancient times, their gear was nothing. Most of the competitions were done in the nude. They competed with each other naked, which is strange to us today. Today, safety is a big idea, right? Like we're very cautious. You've even probably seen the memes going around where there is a lifeguard at the pool. I mean, we've got people, the best swimmers in the world, jumping in, and there's a guy standing over there with a floaty, I guess just in case. I mean, safety is a high precaution in the modern Olympics. In the ancient Olympics, not so much. In the ancient Olympics, a lot of the combat sports like boxing or or wrestling, those kind of things, could be to the death. In fact, the boxers would often weight their gloves with lead to try and do maximum harm upon their opponent. Referees were present, but the referees were given sticks so that if anybody got out of hand, they could start beating them with the stick. That is what happened in the ancient Olympics. They had chariot races where they'd be pulled by like four horses and they'd go around these turns and people would die in the ancient Olympics. A lot of things have changed since then. Today, cheating will get you banned from the Olympics. In ancient days, cheating will get you pub- publicly flogged. So there's that. We've come a long way. Today, whenever we have like, the opening ceremonies, there's almost always a child in it, right? Like if you ever watch the opening ceremonies, there's always they get weird. Right, like a a bean sprout will like grow out of the floor of the stadium and then a child will emerge from the bean sprout and start looking around and then the announcers on TV are like, the child represents innocence and the possibility and how they were born out of an agricultural nation and you're like, ah, there's all this weird stuff. And then eventually like this kid is going to release a dove, right? Like I don't know why, I don't know for what reason, but there's always a dove release at the Olympics, often by a child at least in the modern Olympics, because in the ancient Olympics, children, as far as I figured out in my research, were not a part of it. But if they were, at most, they just would have been following the horses with a shovel. Because in the ancient times, kids were not valued. They weren't revered in the way that we often do today. They were considered more almost like slaves in ancient cultures. And so as we approach this chapter, these few verses in Mark chapter 10, we got to keep in mind that our culture today is very different from the culture that Jesus lived and preached in. What we have come to today, in fact, has been greatly influenced by Jesus to where we are today. And so when we approach these verses, the way that we hear them is not the way that the ancient people would have received them. Not the way that Jesus' crowd would have understood them. And so if you'll look with me in Mark chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 13. Jesus is there with his disciples and it says, They, other people So we see right here, like at this point in the story, the disciples have gotten maybe a little high and mighty. They're sort of playing gatekeeper to Jesus. They're like, oh, no, no, no. He doesn't want anything to do with these children, which we hear, were we're like, rude. But in that culture, that is how children were received. They were just living to the cultural standard of the day, and that children were, were not something that were revered. They're, they're trying to keep these children away from Jesus so that he wouldn't be nuisanced by these little kids running around. Children in, in ancient Roman society... They weren't considered to have had developed souls yet. In fact, like infants and, and all the research that I've been able to show is that children just were not considered very much in an ancient culture. In fact, if you looked at the birth process in an ancient Roman culture in Jesus' day, his, his setting, it was very different from ours today. I know when we had our kids, the hospital we were having our first one with, they kind of required us to watch these videos, and they walk through like, what you do, and they're like, the husband maybe wants to pack a bag before he comes to the hospital, just like the wife. And then other things you do, like during the birthing process, they talked about how you know after the baby is born, immediately it would be placed on the mother's chest so that she can be close to this baby, so that there can be skin-to-skin contact. And if for some reason the mother can't do this, the father, it's recommended, will take off his shirt so that he can provide the skin-to-skin contact. And so we were in one of those situations when we had our kids, and I remember they put me in this jumpsuit, and I'm in an operating room and like a face mask and all that that they were very concerned I was wearing. And so when this baby was born, I was like, I, was, I don't think they want me to take this off like, and give skin to skin. And then also the baby just had a lot of like stuff on it. And so like I didn't go that route. But again, that shows in modern times, we've come a way far distance from what they did in Roman culture. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, it would be placed on the ground in front of the father. And if the father lifted up the child, that would show that he is accepting this child as, as his own, that the rights of a Roman family would now be bestowed upon this child. But if the father turned his back, which he had the option to do, it meant that this child would be abandoned. And sometimes that would be happen if it were born with some sort of deformity, or if there were a question about its parentage, or even just because it was a girl and not a boy. And these babies that were abandoned, they would literally be placed in the street where maybe another family would come by and claim them, usually to use that child later on as a slave, or sometimes the baby just wouldn't make it. And this process of disposal was not considered to be murder. There was no punishment for this. It was completely in the right of the father to either accept this child or to turn his back on it. And then we have Jesus stepping into this culture that often turns their back on children and saying, bring the children to me. We see in the Roman world of the the archaeologists what they have discovered of graves where there might be children. It's like one to 2% actually have any type of gravestone. The mourning period for a child, in this culture there was an official mourning period. If someone in your family died, you would mourn for them for a certain span of time. But for a child, for an infant, there was no mourning period. And then for every year of its life, it would get longer and longer until it reached the age of 10. And then the mourning period would be equal to that as an adult. Kids were not valued in this society. They were often used for labor. They were often used, almost looked upon as slaves. And so the disciples, again, they're just acting to the cultural norm. That's the treatment of kids in their society. They're just doing what everybody else does when it comes to kids. But Jesus stops them. It says that Jesus became indignant. Only seven times do we see that word used in the New Testament, indignant. And only once is it applied to Jesus' actions, and it's right here. He becomes indignant. He becomes strongly, if you have the KJV, it says strongly displeased about their actions. And so Jesus said, bring them to me. So when the whole society didn't value children, when a whole society would turn their backs on children, Jesus, like we've seen him do so often with other people, says, bring him to me. Just as he went to the leper, just as he went to people in sinful situations, Jesus was always going to those who society had turned their backs on. And so we see this out of Jesus. This isn't the only time that we see Jesus addressing children or, or reaching out to children. Earlier on in Mark, he said this in 924, whoever causes one of these little ones to, to, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus is protective of children. In Matthew, we hear the disciples having a discussion about who is greatest says Jesus took a little child and put it in their midst, and he said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus values children. He was protective of children. And this isn't just Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the embodiment of God. And so we see that God values children, that God is protective of children, which is apparent in the, New T- in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 27, 19, it says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. God is protective of children. He values children. Psalm 127, 3, Behold, children are the heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Proverbs 17:6 says, "Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their, the glory of children is their fathers." So right there, grandmother's your crown, right? Like Mimi's little crown. Come put that on your license plate. And so here's what we see. Here's where I want to get to with all of this, is as we move towards a time of back to school. There's maybe a little extra focus on children. And so if I, could look at, if I could talk to our parents today, I'd ask some of the questions that these scriptures bring to us. And, and the first question would be, how might you, like the disciples, be keeping your children from Jesus? And maybe not just parents, but adults. How might we be preventing our children or people in our lives, whether they're family members in our own house, how might we be preventing them from getting to Jesus? What are the things, the distractions that we might be putting between them and Christ. And beyond that, what are we doing to get them to Jesus? And so Jesus says, bring them to me. That's our second question is, what are the things that we do to bring our children to Jesus? I've seen this both in my career as a youth pastor. And for about 15 years, I've done full-time youth ministry, and I've seen parents doing things that keep their kids from Jesus. Sometimes it might be something just that feels out of the family's control. Maybe there was another influence or an external just crisis that happened, and it feels like that gets between a child and Jesus. And sometimes those are brought on by trusted adults. Jesus' words are very stern here. It would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck and then thrown into the ocean. That is some dark hyperbole, but that's what Jesus says about keeping kids from him. But maybe in a more tame sense, I often see other things placed in kids' paths that willingly distract them from Jesus. It could be their curricular stuff at school or, or school itself. It could be the way we go about what we allow in our house, like how much TV we allow, what social media we allow, what devices we put in their hands. What are the things we might put in between them and Jesus? Is it possible that sometimes we're preventing our kids from getting to Jesus? But then the second question, which is not much easier, is how are we bringing our kids to Jesus? And if I could right now just give a little bit of a commercial for for church on Wednesday nights, for a Wednesday night program that we have for kids all the way up through seniors in high school. I always tell parents, I got to have a conversation with a parent at the Big Shindig, um, just the difference between their child entering into the youth group last year and their child now. And it was one of these situations where at first the kid was like, I don't know about all this, and now they love it and they love to come. And this is what I try and tell parents. If you can get them to us, we'll do our best to get them to come back. You get them here, we'll get them to come back. And here's reasons for that. Let me just throw out a few things for this commercial for our Wednesday night program. There was a Harvard study done recently that shows weekly church attendance makes people happier, healthier, and live longer. Adults and children alike. Weekly church attendance is on par with healthy eating and exercise. Which is why I do neither of those things, but I come to church multiple times in a week, right? It's just as good for me. Kids that come to church regularly have better grades on average and make safer decisions in their future. We also see that those who come to church are less likely to suffer from depression. We know it's not, not at all. You come to church, you'll never find yourself in a, in a place of depression, but it's less likely. And what this study from Harvard showed is that those who never attend church are five times more likely to commit suicide. Church has benefits that we don't always recognize, benefits that I would say often outweigh some of the other things we put in the lives of our kids, or at best, things that we want for our kids. I want them to be happy. I want them to be healthy. I want them to make good decisions and good grades. Church can help provide that. But beyond that, we hope, and I think we have seen That church provides them an opportunity to grow in their faith with Christ, to meet Jesus, to have loving adults surrounding them that can show them Jesus and show them a way to live. And so if you get them to come, we'll do our best to get them to come back. And let me just say, too, like that's a commercial really for discovery because I'm involved here. But, man, if you find that your kid really likes this other church and they click there better than here, as long as they are somewhere, get them somewhere where they can be exposed to Jesus and other like-minded people that are chasing after Jesus. Also, there's another study that was done. It was a national study of youth and religion. And this found that not only is church better for kids, but when we asked the question, okay, well, how do I bring my kids to Jesus? They found in this study, the number one predictor of a kid's faith is their parents' faith. The number one thing, if you want to see how your kid, if you want to see the future into their faith, look in the mirror at your own relationship with Jesus. They found that on average, kids tend to adopt their parents' faith, which is the difference of what we often find in, our, or in the myths that we believe, right? I often hear people say, like, I don't want to get them to church for a second. I don't want to make them come because I'm worried they'll, like, rebel later on. Let me just show that that's, that's the only time we use that logic, right? Like, nobody ever says, like, I want them to be a UT fan, but I'm worried if I come on too strong that they'll not become a UT fan, that they'll rebel against UT. No, we put the onesie on them in the crib, right? We're turning the game on every chance that we get. But for some reason with church, we're afraid that we'd come on too strong and that they'd backfire. What I see is that when parents have a strong faith, their kids don't rebel. What I see is that those kids develop a strong faith. So the number one predictor of your kid's faith is the way that you are following Jesus. So if you want them to have a beneficial, life-giving faith, you need to develop that in yourself. If you want them to have a superficial faith that's just checking off a box of feeling better about going to church, then that's all you need to do also. These are tough words, but Jesus talks about us bringing kids to him. So my question for us as adults in the room is what are we doing to bring the children in our lives to Jesus? And so I want to spend time, just sort of kind of close out this portion of our message time. I want to spend time praying. And we're going to have a time of prayer, kind of uh, three different prayers. First, I want to pray for our children at this church that are going back to school, some this week and some next week. So on the screens at the side, you're going to see that there are the names of schools. And I probably missed some names. If I did miss some names, like it just was an oversight on my part or the website that I went to copy them all off of. But what you can do right now is I'm just going to have some time where I'll be quiet for about 30 seconds, and then I'll close this out in prayer. And if you want to look through that list and just find schools that you know kids that are are going to these schools, I just invite you to pray for those kids and pray for that school, because they're often entering into dark places, dark hallways. They're facing things like we have never faced growing up in a world of social media, in a world of bullying, in a world of changes like has never happened before. So this morning, I want to spend some time praying for them and praying that they can find their way to Jesus. Let's pray right now. God, right now we want to lift up these schools to you and the students that will make their ways back to them in the coming weeks. God, whether it's a public school, a private school, a Christian school, online school, or homeschool, God, we just want to offer them up to you and the journey ahead of our kids this year. And we pray, God, in the midst of all the, the, the clamor, the craziness that can happen, And back to school and just in a school year of sports, of of grades, of everything that's happening, performances, God, we pray that you would be our priority. And that you would show us as adults ways that we can bring these kids to you. So God, I pray that this year, this week, you would go before these students into their schools, into those hallways and let them feel your presence surrounding them. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to take a second now, if you are a parent, of a kid that will be going back to school at any time, not just this week or next, but whenever, I'm going to invite you to stand. Being a parent is a tough job. Go ahead. See, they're too tired to even stand. They're like, ah, can we just keep sitting? It is a tough job. And what we've talked about today is a tall order of making sure there's nothing in between our kids and Jesus, but also bringing them to Jesus, demonstrating that through our faith. We want to pray for these people. So let's have a time now. Pick somebody out around you if you're close enough to put a hand on a shoulder or whatever. Let's pray for these parents right now. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would surround these parents. God, we don't know their battles, their struggles. I know sometimes it just feels like you're barely clinging on. And God, I pray that you just give them your supernatural energy when it comes to raising kids, when it comes to fighting fights for your kids. God, I I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what we might have put in between our kids and you. God, help us to see those things. It might even be hard things to remove from our household, but help us to see how important that is. God, maybe it's our behavior. Maybe it's something we've introduced. God, I pray you just help us to see that and remove it. And God, I pray that you would help us to have your supernatural power in bringing our kids to you. Let them see our love for you. Let them see your forgiveness for us. God, help us to demonstrate your forgiveness to them, your love to them so that they can see in us you. And they can see in our faith, a life-giving faith that will give them life as well. God, help these parents as they bring their kids to Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Now parents, you can sit down. I'm gonna invite any of our teachers or administrators or school staff. Now you guys can stand. And they're gonna do it quickly because they're organized, they're ready to go. They've been, they look at them, yes. They know, they're thinking about pencils and crayons right now. It is not an easy time to be a teacher. Man, last year must have been rough to have been a teacher. Often parents find them side, or less and less we see parents taking the sides of teachers and teachers having to stand in awkward situations. And we just want to pray for them. We want to pray for these teachers, particularly church-going Christian teachers, so that they can have an influence again in often dark places. So let's pray for them now. God, I want to lift up each and every teacher, administrator, school staff member to you right now. God, the ones here in our building, the ones that might be online, the ones that just couldn't make it today, God, we want to lift them up. And I pray, God, as they're prepping classrooms, as they're getting together curriculum, as they're going down the list of their, the names of their students, as they're maybe receiving a whole new class out of the blue right before the week of school starts, God, I pray for these teachers. I ask, God, that you would show them ways that they can be a demonstration of your love in spiritual deserts. God, that they could show Jesus in a place where he is most needed in our schools. So, God, again, give them your supernatural strength and energy. Give them your supernatural love to pour out on these students as they begin their school year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know what your house has been watching on TV, but as for me and my house these days, we've got Olympic fever. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics. This is sermon number two. If you didn't catch it, I'm using the same sort of approach to it. Uh, I want to highlight some of our Olympiad's uh, quotes right here. One of the things I love about the Olympics is the inspiration it brings to us, right? So here's some inspiration I'm going to bring to you, some Olympic athlete quotes. Passion is a huge prerequisite to winning. That's Kerry Walsh, volleyball player. The more you dream, the further you go. Michael Phelps. Each of us has a fire in our hearts for something. It's our goal in life to find it and keep it. Mary Lou Retton, gymnast and West Virginian. We all have dreams, but in order to make dreams come into reality, it takes an awful lot of determination, dedication, self-discipline, and effort. Jesse Owens. I'm not the next Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps. I'm the first Simone Biles. Brian Boitano. Just joking. That was, Simone said that. (laughs) Our culture loves these quotes, right? We love the inspiration that comes from these athletes. But here's what I found is that often these these inspirational quotes often have a lot of self-glorification, right? Which we love. We love it when somebody like talks the talk and then goes and backs it up by chucking a shot put 65 feet. We love to watch that. But also, we notice in Scripture that Jesus pushes against self-glorification time and time again. And that happens in the verses we're dealing with today. As the disciples have brought children to him, and they try and turn them, or people have brought children to the disciples, they try and turn them from Jesus. Jesus says, let the children come to me, don't hinder them. For truly, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Children are a big part of this message, but we cannot miss what Jesus is really talking about, and that is the kingdom. It was Jesus' number one message all throughout his time of teaching. It wasn't about love. He talked a lot about love. It wasn't about forgiveness. He talked about a lot about forgiveness. What he talked about the most was the kingdom. And so we hear with this, like we approach this word of kingdom as a little bit different to us, right? Like when I think kingdom, I think castles and King Arthur and knights and horses, right? But for them, this is what they lived in. They lived in different kingdoms. The kingdom of Rome was ruling the Jewish people at that time. We had the Greek kingdom had had shown its eye. The, The Jewish kingdom was a part of things. So they very much identified themselves with the kingdom they were a part of. It was like a nationality to them or a team to them. This was the team they identified with. The kingdom language that Jesus uses is an identity language. A kingdom is something that we identify ourselves with. And we see this, that kingdom should equal our identity, but it can be an identity for anybody. It doesn't depend on borders. It doesn't depend on your national heritage. In fact, it's not a kingdom that you were born into, but you are reborn into. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John three three, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here in this very talk, where Jesus is talking about children, and saying, "Bring him to me," he is demonstrating something that is countercultural, which the kingdom is always countercultural. In fact, if we went back to last week's sermon that Matt preached, a hard sermon, he did a great job with on marriage and divorce. Jesus took a countercultural stance when he talked about divorce in their time. Now, with children, he's taking a countercultural stance, again, treating children differently than the rest of culture did. And next week, we're going to hear about a guy who was a rich young ruler and see how Jesus' approach to finances is also countercultural. The kingdom often turns things upside down, and the way our world goes about it, Jesus flips it over and says it shouldn't be that way, it should be this way. The low should be lifted high, the rich should become poor, the first will be last. So with all this, we also see that humility is a huge theme in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' highest praise for a person on earth went to John the Baptist. In Matthew eleven eleven, he said, Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What is it he liked about John the Baptist? John the Baptist had a very humble approach. He had that mantra that he must increase, God must increase, I must decrease. That's the opposite of what we usually hear out of our athletic heroes, right? But Jesus loved this and he said so with this that John was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and that the last would be first and the first will be last. That or I'm sorry, that John was greatest on earth, but even the least in the kingdom of heaven was greater than John, who was great on earth. In the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first, the first will be last. We also hear over and over again that the kingdom is eternal, and I know I'm rushing because I promised that I was going to go short with these two sermons, and my first one went long, so we're flying, so just keep with me. You might want to take some notes. The kingdom was prepared for us before the beginning of time. That's Matthew twenty-three 24-35. Luke one 33 tells us that it was initiated with the coming of Jesus. Luke 17-24 says it will be completed or fulfilled, not today, not when Jesus rose from the dead, but when Jesus returns again to our earth. And it says that those who enter the kingdom are given eternal life. That's 1 Peter 1, 11. So the question we have to ask is, how can I enter this countercultural eternal kingdom? And the answer is right here in these verses. When Jesus looks at these children, he says, we must do it like a child. We must receive the kingdom like a child. And there's sort of a mystery there to crack. Jesus doesn't lay it out like step by step. So we have to ask ourselves, what is consistent with children and entering into the kingdom of heaven. What other places do we see in the Bible that might liken our approach to Jesus, to that of children? And I've thought a lot about this this week, and here's what I figured out. Looking at my own kids, looking at the Bible, I think there's three things we've got to do to enter the kingdom like children. And first is that we have to admit that we are helpless. Kids are helpless, right? I mean, you got a little baby, they can't even flip over at the beginning, right? Like, they're not going to eat without you. They can't change themselves without you. They can't do a thing without you. They're helpless. Even as they grow older, children are still pretty helpless to do things. My boy Levi, we have this little uh, net, like, swing that hangs out of our tree. Levi can get into it. He's helpless to get out of it. He cannot get out of it. The other day, his sisters were playing with him in the swing. He got into the swing. They then abandoned him, came back inside. Me and Christy are inside, too. And later, we just hear the screaming. We don't know for how long Levi was stuck in that scream, but he was very distraught by it. I came out and his like, face is pressed against the net. He, he's helpless to get out. Children are helpless. Our approach to Jesus needs to be, I am helpless. I can't do it on my own. Kids are honest, right? Kids are not good at hiding their mess. I had a, a, a large zit on my face this week, as often happens when I have to talk in front of a bunch of people. All through, my children on separate occasions pointed it out to me. As if I didn't know. It looked like I'd been on a hunting trip with Dick Cheney, right? That joke was good 10 years ago and still kills today. Or maims. But all of them, they can't hide it, right? Like they are honest to a fault. One of our kids had a problem when she was younger of pointing out people that were maybe larger than normal. And I remember walking through a store at one point and she looked at a lady who was coming by us and said, that's a large lady. And I had to be like, yeah, she's wearing a big coat It's because it's cold outside. You've probably never seen a coat that big, right? Another time, so then we had to have a talk with her and be like, hey, we don't talk about differences in people's bodies. That might be something embarrassing to them. So later on, we were eating at a restaurant, ironically, named Fats Cafe, and we're sitting in this restaurant, and someone who, you know, owned up to the name was walking down the middle of the restaurant, and my daughter's sitting next to me, and she goes, dad, dad, blue shirt. Blue shirt. Like, I just had to see. Like, can you believe? Kids are honest. And with that, we have to learn to be honest with Jesus, honest about who we are, honest about our mess, honest that we are helpless, honest that when it comes to sin, we can't forgive it. When it comes to death, we can't do anything about it. So we have to enter the kingdom in that way with our third point, with that humility, that recognition of I need something beyond myself. I need Jesus. But that humility is so counterculture to us. We don't see it in the Olympics. We don't see it in the business world. We do not see humility often in our culture. And when we do, many times it's looked down upon. Many times it's said like, ah, well, they could do better or they should be more successful. There's one place I've seen that this year. A lady named Cindy McLaughlin who runs in the Olympics the women's 400-meter hurdle, which is a full lap around a track while jumping over things. I mean, these people have to be insane, right? Sydney McLaughlin, I think she's 20 years old, or I don't know her exact age, maybe 20, I forget. But she, in qualifying for the Olympics, broke the world record of the women's 400-meter hurdles. And after she broke this record, she didn't say, check me out, look how awesome I am. She didn't say, look at my face, that's a face of a champion, that's a face of self-determination. And said she put this picture up on her Instagram account, and she said, this is the face of a woman in awe of God. And if you dive into her story, you'll see that the last Olympics she was at was very difficult when fame hit her afterwards. She was a senior in high school. And she struggled with fame, and it seems sometime in between then and now, she has re-altered her life and focused it on Jesus. And you can't get through an interview or an article with this woman where she does not take the spotlight off of her and put it onto God. That's a great demonstration of humility, making ourselves low so that Jesus can be escalated. And so this morning, as we move to communion, I'm going to invite the the band back out. They're going to play really fast because I went over on time. Get over. You'll be fine. I'll bring the band back out. Jason Theed, one of our elders, is going to come and lead us in communion. I hope that today we can approach the communion table through humility. I hope that today we can approach our faith through humility, recognizing that we need something else, that we are helpless, recognizing that we have a mess that we can't fix, and approaching Jesus with that humility like a child, a child that Jesus values a child that Jesus wants to see come to him, a child that Jesus himself humbled himself. Philippians 2.8 says, being found in human form humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross, that Jesus humbled himself to die for. Jesus made himself low so that we who are low, we who are children, could have a father. He was willing to die for us so that we could have a heavenly kingdom and a heavenly Father. Let me pray for us. God, we want to offer this time up to you in humility. And as we move to communion, God, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would guide us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.